Amen. That's my bride. Yeah. Title of my sermon today is What Goes Down Must Soar Up. And of course, we see that. We see that that beautiful symmetry in this hymn. The reason that people regard this as a hymn is because much of the language that was just shared here is language that's quite foreign to to Paul. In, In many cases, he never uses many of the very key words that describe the very definitive activities of Christ and the mindset of Christ throughout this hymn. Uh, also because of the parallelism and the meter uh, of it and, and even the balance of the entire uh, hymn, man, many do then regard this as a hymn, not of Paul's writing, but one that he would have regarded as being common to the church and appropriate to use at just this time in the letter to be able to encourage them down this path of greater and greater humility and greater and greater unity. And as a result of doing so, when you present that before the Lord, so pleasing, aligned with the will of God, to be completely unified, to be completely humble, my goodness, what it is that God is able to do through us and to through, through us communally as well. It's exciting, exciting to, to, to really surrender ourselves over to know what it is that God wants to do with us as a result of that. Now, while, while it is true, oh, uh, while it is true that what goes down must soar up. You know, the opposite is true as well. And we, we see that uh, many, many times in Scripture too. That what goes up, what exalts itself, often is humbled. And, I mean, think of Haman in the book of Esther, exalting himself, only to come crashing and burning. Right. Think even of Adam. Exalting himself, wanting to have his eyes be open and be like God and go down the path of temptation that, that Satan gives him, only to have the ultimate going down. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm no uh, stranger to the exaltation of self. As I mentioned last week, the reason I love this section of scripture is because it just speaks to who I really fight to make sure that I'm not. And it's, it's not who I am in Christ, but it is who I am in the flesh. Self, self exaltation, self aggrandizement, selfish ambition. It's, it's everything of what I am. But I also know that in different small ways through my life, whenever I would begin to be kind of full of myself, God was always there to help me learn the lesson that I can deflate this balloon rather quickly. And in the uh, spring of 1985, it was a beautiful day in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And at this time, I, full of myself, was the president of Phi Sigma Kappa fraternity. Nothing to be proud of, yet I was uh, ultimately proud of that. And and not only that, but I had uh, recently volunteered as a fundraiser in our alumni giving program. That's basically where you as an undergrad call the graduates and hit them up for money. And that went pretty well for me. Uh, And as a result, I got some awards. Uh, from the university, and then the school newspaper drew even more attention to me by, by kind of showcasing this achievement, complete with photos. Not that I needed all of those press clippings, because I was pretty good at tooting my own horn anyway. And as I continued to highlight my achievements, it was around that same time that the freshman pledge class at our fraternity had the charge that they have every year 
That is to kidnap the president of the fraternity. And they go through some kind of crazy scheming to, to be able to work it out. But apparently I made it rather easy for them having such massive blind spots in my life as I did. And so um, the freshman, by the way, too, of all my kind of circle of conversation seemed the least repulsed by hearing of my wonderful achievements. And, and so I would often kind of re retell them with great regalia of, of the great fundraising prowess that I had and showing them perhaps even the newspaper clippings. Uh, and I'm sure like out of respect, they, they weren't kind of saying, you know, I just threw up in my mouth as I listened to you say that. But nonetheless, they, they did become kind of my, my audience for, for, for some of this mess. And, and during this same semester, the, 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 the pledges began their plotting and scheming of how it was that they were going to, to kidnap, kidnap me. And according to their plan, I then received a phone call. And it was a phone call, it was a woman on the other line, uh, and she said she was a receptionist at the annual giving office. And also told me that it, they were preparing an annual brochure, and it's a color brochure, and they wanted to have, you know, kind of glossy pictures and all of that, and they'd like to highlight me in that brochure. Of course, that made perfect sense to me, <laughs> being a photogenic young man, as well as, you know, being such an effective uh, part of their organization. Why not? Uh, it sounds completely plausible, right? And, and so even she gave me a, 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 a number to call her back on, which of course I did. And, you know, so, so we worked out all of the details. And she asked then if tomorrow afternoon I'd be available for the photo shoot. I said, let me check my calendar as I'm available that time. <laughs> and then the next day, as soon as I got up, I, I started, you know, kind of ironing my suit and making everything. And, and as I'm doing so, the freshmen keep coming into my fraternity room, into my, my, my room at the, at the frat. And, and they're asking me, hey, so what are, you, what are you doing? Why are you getting all kind of, you know, gussied up? Are you, did you have an interview? You know, because it was uh, end of junior year. Maybe they thought I was interviewing for some things. And I said, oh, no, it's not an interview. Let me tell you why I'm preparing all of my clothes right now. You see, I'm about to be highlighted in the annual giving brochure for the university. And so they have, you know, kind of a special photo shoot that's being arranged for me. And, and so anyway, I think they probably prefer that I look a bit professional. So that's, that's why I'm doing all of this. One after another, they came in. And I did not tire of telling that story again and again and again. Only uh, imagining them trying to just hold in their laughter until they could leave my, uh, my, my fraternity room. So... I'm going to read, to some, read from, from uh, an account that I had, had written about this at one point. Um, and so anyway, over and over again, you know, I, I would feign humility, thanking everybody for, you know, kind of listening to me and, and even to the, the people at the annual giving on the phone of, of just, oh, shucks, not me. I, I can't believe that, you know, you really want, want me to come to that. And, and they're in the room listening to these conversations. And then a few hours later put on the suit, looking good, and I begin to stride through campus to my appointment for the photo shoot. And as I'm walking down Locust Walk at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, suddenly one or two of the uh, pledges start to walk along with me. And I, I find that interesting. I'm like, oh, where, where are you guys going? And these are two that I hadn't talked to yet. 
And, and, and they said, oh, we're just, we're just walking over to Walnut. I was like, oh, I'm walking over to Walnut. You know why I'm walking over to Walnut? Because that's where the annual giving office is. And again, I tell them my stupid story. Explain my vital service to the university. And then just as we're about to cross Walnut Street, as I go in, let me, let me go ahead and read from this now. And before I could dismiss them from my presence to, to head in, a cargo van comes screeching up right in front of us. And at this point now, there's four of these pledges that are now walking with me. I was none the wiser because I, I had a bigger audience. I thought that was all great. And, and, and the cargo van bursts open, revealing inside all the rest of the pledges. They then jump out, they bind me quickly in duct tape, and toss me into the back of the van. Now, here's the really sad part. Then, uh, let me read to you what I wrote a few years back on this. And then, to the shame of my family for many generations, I actually said these words. Wait, you don't understand. I know you need to kidnap me, but you can't kidnap me today. <laughs> I, I have a photo shoot with the alumni giving office. They need me for the brochure. You've got to try another day for this. And then as I wrote, for reasons foreign to me, my plea prompted spontaneous and universal laughter among the entire complement of pledges. Finally, the ringleader gathered himself together, looked me straight in the eye and said, Ed, dramatic pause, there never was a photo shoot. <laughs> they still tell the story to this day that the most precious moment of that year of their life was the way my face dropped when I realized that, not that I was being kidnapped, but that there was no photo shoot. So, instead of spending the afternoon looking over proofs in my suit and, and, and instead, a few hours later, they had so completely debased me and, I mean, permanent marker, I mean, I was a mess, tore up everything, and then ended up rolling the, the van in front of the most populated area in campus and rolled me out of the van onto the ground for everybody to see. And then I did my walk of shame back, back home at that point. So yes, what goes up must come down. Now let's look back at a much more inspiring example that we have in Jesus Christ. And in this, in this hymn that we have here, it begins with, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so what many consider this to be is, okay, so what we, what we have here in, in this passage is what many consider to be the divine parabola. And if parabola doesn't kind of strike you in a heart of fear because you, you know, kind of just, just took uh, calculus or, or algebra and you had to graph a parabola and to figure out, you know, x squared equals y and minus one. Well, but, 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 but a parabola is just simply a shape 
that begins at a, at a high point comes down to a low point only to return back to a high point again. And so here we have this parabola in this, in this hymn. And you can see the kind of the balance and the beauty of this hymn in this parabola about Jesus. That it begins, you know, up here with, he's God. He's in very nature God. And, and it affirms equality with God. And, and by the way, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or sometimes it says grasped there. But now this idea, who was in very nature God? I actually like the NIV translation here. The, the word for nature in this case is the word morphe. And we get words like trans, um, metamorphosis, uh, that, that is the change of form. Now when, we often get the translation of form for morphe. Now form, you would often think, when you think form, you think of the outward appearance of something. But it's not the kind of the, the real core of what this word means. There's another Greek word that means just simply the outer trappings, the outer appearance. And it's used in this hymn in a little while, and I'll show it to you. That's the word schema. And, and schema is just the kind of the outward appearance of something. But morphe is like the essence of it. as what It is what it looks like, but it also is what it is in the depth of its essence. Now, why is that a big deal? Because what this hymn is asserting and what Paul is sharing and what the early church would have proclaimed to one another and what Jesus thought about himself, because this is the mindset of Christ, what Jesus would have thought and, and actually would have even affirmed about himself is that Jesus was God. That's no small thing. If that's really the case, then all of these kind of postmodern bets about, well, he's a good moral teacher. Yes, I'll give him a golf clap. Oh, I like what he said about the poor. Oh, I like the way that he was humble. Oh, I, I like the, the golden rule, do unto others. Do unto you. Oh, it's all very nice. There is no, oh, that's very nice. There is no golf clap in the presence of Jesus. Either you think because he claims to be God that he is a loon on the, on the order of bizarre, or he is who he is. The Lord of the universe. Sovereign over all affairs. God incarnate. And God eternal. And if he's, if he's not that to you, then you've got to dismiss him as either something bizarre or something uh, com completely lo lunatic or, or something very evil to present himself that way. But there is no, oh, I like Jesus. Oh, he's a good moral teacher. He doesn't give you that option. I love how C.S. Lewis asserts that. You can't go kind of all milk toast on Jesus. You can't make him milk toast and you can't have a milk toast reaction to Jesus. Either you fear him for what he is and fall on your knees and worship or you reject him for the absolute lunacy that he's trying to peddle. But there is no golf clapping in the presence of Jesus. There is either pure rejection or nothing but astounding worship. That God himself would disrupt my life and help me to be able to know him. And not only that, but provide ransom for me and, and debase himself for me. So that I can have all hope beyond hope and to be exalted later myself. My goodness, what a deal. Thank you, Jesus. But there's nothing in between. And if you sit here today right now, and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this Jesus. Maybe a little bit more Jesus sprinkled in my life might be a good deal. 
Well, if there's real Jesus sprinkled into your life, then it is going to be the most disruptive sprinkling that has ever occurred. It, it is, is going to cut through everything with an amazing clarity unless you let the world inform you. Well, what is a 21st century pontificator going to know about Jesus versus what those that followed him really said about him? And what they said about him and what they sang about him and what they proclaimed about him? Jesus, God. But, by the way, despite being God, in order to kind of hook us up, he said he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's an interesting word. Sometimes it's a troubling word. And I'm going to go through a couple of the words here only because so many kind of parse every single word of this hymn because it's so important. And, and there's so much writing on it that, that if this hymn can any way be undermined, then perhaps some hope that maybe Christianity itself could be undermined. And one of the ways that they try to undermine it is they say, well, that word grasped or that word not to be used for his own advantage is also the word that's sometimes used for stealing something away that belongs to somebody else. Like, aha, maybe what this hymn is saying is Jesus, sure, equal with God, but only because he kind of stole the identity of, of being God away. But that is not the context, and, and it is not the meaning of this word as it's laid out here. N.T. Wright wrote a, a very definitive journal article in 1986 about this word. It's, it's um, harmagmas, that, that, I'm sorry, harpagmas that, that is here. And, and it is the very idea that it is an entitlement that you're not grabbing. And that as having equality with God, if you're God, well then, you got some benefits. You're, 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 you're the jaw, literally. I mean, you're it. You're the ultimate. You've got sovereignty. You, you make the rules as well. And, and if that's the case, well then you've got entitlements that are really, truly entitlements. And that's Jesus. But guess what? In order to be who we needed to be and to really be a sacrifice that really was meaningful, he decided not to clutch on to those entitlements. Because why? Why is he going to go this journey? Because we're filthy. Because we're in a debt beyond our, our, our eyelids in sin that we can't even hope to be able to have a solution for. And we're going to face an eternal judgment that will curl our toenails. And if not for Jesus deciding to be a real sacrifice, but the beginning of that was to recognize, yes, God, but I am not going to hold on to any of those entitlements. And what I decide to do for you when I become your ransom, oh, I really am going to be vulnerable. I really am going to be at the whim of, of evil as, as I head down and head down into earth itself. So... Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Uh, nothing is the, is the uh, some call this the kenotic hymn. Because kenosis is, is also the word to empty yourself. Jesus emptied himself of all privilege, all status, all honor, all glory. Emptied him, he did not empty himself of his divinity. He remained God but yet emptied himself of all the advantages that would attend to that. Why? So that he could really endure for your sake. Amen. And, and when he emptied himself, what did he take on? He took on the very form 
Again, it's the word morphe again. Not just he had the outer appearance of a servant. And you know, the NIV kind of pulls a bit of a punch here. It's the word slave. And it's not a popular idea. It's not a popular word. It's, it's, it's obviously repulsive to us in, in America. But he took on the very morphe, the essence of one who is a slave. And being made in human likeness. And then it goes on to say, not only that, but then, and being found in appearance. By the way, appearance, he's in appearance a man, schema, schema. Yeah, he looked like a man, but that's just what he looked like. He still had a whole lot more under the hood than, than what it was before your eyes. And his horsepower was that of the divine under the hood. But being found in appearance, schema as a man, now to a Philippian audience, this is getting real. Because he, Paul is now affirming to the Philippians. And if this is a hymn that helped convert Philippians, wow, what a disruption. What a kind of poof, uh, what a mind-blowing that that would have been. And he then says, he humbled himself. How deeply did he humble himself? He humbled himself to becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. Here in Philippi, we're looking at a place of honor. A place of stature. This is a, a society that later is described by, uh, well, it, it's called uh, Romanitis, is, is, this, is this phrase that embodied all the virtues of Rome. It's used later by Tertullian, an early Christian. He coins the term. But it is the idea that here in Philippi, this Roman colony, the ideal in the mind of a Roman was not somebody who would humble himself. The ideal in the mind of a Roman was the soldier citizen farmer. That's the ideal. Oh, are we running out of battery? Oh, thanks. Um, that was the, the very ideal of, of the Roman. Soldier citizen farmer. The, the ultimate example of that was an, was an ancient Roman named Cincinnatus, where we, where we get Cincinnati from. Uh, and he was you know, one who went back to his farm, but then Rome was being invaded, and he was called back to service. He became a soldier, and off he went, and he vanquished the enemy within weeks. And rather than maintain the status of dictator, which is what he was awarded in order to marshal the troops and repel the army, he, in his gravitas, declined the title and went back to farming again. And so Cincinnati is a kind of a famous figure when, when we're talking about even succession of power even today. But a farmer was hardworking, frugal, a practical man, worked the land with his hands. He was courageous, a strong man, a man who obeyed orders. He risked his own life in the name of Rome. And uh, again, we have all of this embodied in him. And this idea of gravitas was the main virtue that made you admirable, made you honorable in the eyes of the Philippian culture. And it was this idea that you had weight, you had seriousness, you had dignity. When you walk in the room, things matter. You have importance, substance. There's a depth to your personality. You have got it going on. And, and that's, the, that's what would impress a Philippian. But to use the word instead of gravitas of Christ, to use the humility of Christ, wow, flip everything on its head. This honor society of soldier citizen farmers that are now honoring gravitas, that are the fertile ground of the gospel, they now are hearing, instead of gravitas, they're hearing humility. 
Humility. Now, we, again, I mentioned this last week. To us, we say humility all the time. We like it. Not one instance, besides maybe a sort of instance in Plato's writings, not one instance is humility conveyed in a positive sense in all extant ancient literature. If we were to have synonyms for it, it would, it would be weakling, wimpy, anemic, sickly, servile, doormat, puny, paltry, lame, tame, overlooked, inconsequential, feeble. That's what comes to the ears of a Philippian. That you are of no account. And you're going to come in here in my house? You're going to come in my house and tell me that this is the new Caesar? This is the new king that I should worship? That Caesar has been eclipsed by this wimpy, wimpy, wimpy man of no account? Try your best, Paul. Let's see what you can do. Now here's what's amazing. That Jesus not only is so compelling to the Roman society as to completely overtake it, but even to the Jews, for them to understand Jesus as God, the one society on earth that was least likely, most resistant to the idea of a man claiming to be God, were the Jews. To the Jews, God was transcendent. God was otherworldly, supernatural, sacred. Don't you blaspheme our God, Jesus, by actually claiming to be God yourself. And yet, Jesus converts thousands of Jews. Imagine the character of such a man who could convince such a people that he was God. For them to produce this hymn. That would make its way even into the Roman colony of Philippi. Imagine the power of a humble man of Jesus that would convince people that he was God. Imagine the miracles that would affirm that this was God. We're dealing with something that is not to be trifled with in Jesus Christ. This is the biggest deal that ever came through Jerusalem, and this is the biggest deal that ever came through Philippi, and this is the biggest deal that ever swept through our souls, our lives, our community. And this is not something just simply to kind of dabble in. This is Jesus, presented full-blown, unfiltered, for our amazement, not just our amazement, but for us to recognize what it is that God has done for us, that He loved us this much to intervene to this degree. Now, having abased himself, the ultimate abasement, the ultimate humility, the ultimate curse was crucifixion. And in Philippi, any who were crucified were mainly crucified for this reason. You were treasonous, you were unpatriotic, you railed against Rome. As a matter of fact, those were the charges against Jesus. He stirs up the people to rebellion, they say in Luke about him. And so here you have an unpatriotic, wimp being presented and ultimately cursed and dies in humility naked on a cross. This is what rolls into town through Paul, through the Jews, into Philippi and completely changes the entire landscape of that Roman colony. Wow! What a Christ it is that we serve. But it doesn't just end here in this hymn. But having humbled himself to that degree, that's not all. Then comes the other side of the parabola. Then God exalted him. Exalted him 
and in, to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess. And this is the part that is so brilliant that this is the hymn that he would pre- present to Philippi. Because the ultimate test of being a good citizen, farmer, and soldier, and they all were. I mean, this, this was a colony, a Roman colony, planted by soldiers who had gained citizenship and land. These citizen farmer soldiers, the number one binding response to the grace that was given to them by Rome was to be able to proclaim from their lips, Caesar is Lord. And this hymn doesn't just stop at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, but this hymn brings the final punch home to this community. In case anybody was kind of straddling the fence, Paul makes it super clear. Oh, and by the way, and every single voice will be raised. Every tongue will confess, publicly profess, and ring out through the land. Not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Boom. Boom. Completely changes everything there in Philippi. Absolutely earth shattering. This is gravitas at its greatest. Jesus is Lord. I'm not Lord anymore. My emotions aren't Lord anymore. Yeah, I've got this, you know, kind of affection for this, for this girl and I want to do things my own way and I want to have it my own way. But you know what? I'm not Lord anymore. Jesus is Lord. Even this, even these emotions, even this appeal to romance or whatever it might be, not in alignment with Christ, needs to be subordinated to true lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, is Lord. Paul goes on to say later, through Timothy, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless he has turned from his wickedness. This is not some empty phrase that we say, but that we've really turned from anything that aligns itself against the very will of God. Maybe there's a little something you want to get going on in your romantic life. Maybe there's something that's going on that actually stokes your, your pride. Maybe there's a reputation that you want to actually exalt greater than exalting that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you want to look a certain way in your workplace, your neighborhood, or your school. But that is not making Jesus Lord. It's making your reputation Lord. Your fears Lord. Your emotions, Lord. Your considerations, Lord. No matter what it is, whether it be family, or, or career, or romance, or finance, anything, all of that needs to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He who was rich became poor for our sake. And, and astoundingly, he then is exalted, exalted to the highest place. Now, as I said earlier, this is the grand parabola that ends in exaltation. Everything that goes down will soar up. And Jesus himself says in Luke that everyone, I'll, I'll read it in a minute. So, but now on the opposite of this, let's look at us. Let's look at us and Adam. Let's look at who we are. We have a parabola as well. But sadly... The parabola that was our our life before Christ was not the smiling parabola, but the frowning parabola. And and look at Adam. He was formed from dust, very lowly. But then he was made in the image of God with dominion over creation. God is, is exalting him. Pretty terrific. 
if it only continued on that vein. But then Adam decides to exalt himself. Whereas Jesus decided that equality with God was nothing to be grasped, Adam grasped equality with God. If you eat of this, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam grasped equality with God, how? Through his disobedience concerning the tree. And then, having tried to exalt himself, what is the case? Cargo van's going to pull up. And you're going to realize what's what. Adam experienced fear and shame, and he began to hide from God. Not quite what he bargained for as he exalted himself, nor we. And then, through the curse, he's enslaved to sin and enslaved to working in all of creation through toil. And ultimately, dies and returns to dust. That's all of our lives before we come to know Christ. In all the different ways, we strive for ourselves only to ultimately be setting ourselves up for the ultimate despair that will come. But that is not what Jesus wants for us. He says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's, that's uh, Luke 14, 11. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. If there's something that you are exalting above Jesus as Lord in your life right now, you are being constrained from what life is meant to be for you. If we as a body of Christ are collectively okaying one another with, yeah, I, I know that perhaps we should be more generous, that we should be more giving, that we should be more um, focused on, on the mission of Christ. But yet if we do, there might be sacrifice. There, there might be difficulties. There might be awkwardness in the way that people view us. There might be friction in some of our relationships that we'd like to be kind of just, you know, keep on keeping on. If any of that is Lord, if we're exalting that above God, we will be humbled. And with what a great crash that will be. But on the flip side of it, all who humble themselves will be exalted. Look at the degree to which Jesus was exalted. That's astounding. And he wants this to be for us. He comes to help us to see that you can trust God on this. And not only trust God on this, but I came to give you this. I came to to have obedience on that tree. I came to, to, to not just be disobedient regarding that tree but to actually obey what God says about that tree. Where Adam disobeyed regarding the tree and plunged us into a a sinful nature, Jesus comes to reverse that curse. And when God tells him to be obedient regarding the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself who had no sin became sin for us. I'm sorry, uh, that that he uh, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus was obedient to the tree as Adam was disobedient to the tree. And now, later on in this service, in just a few minutes, we're going to be able to be obedient to the tree. Because as we look at the cross, and whereas Adam was told, don't eat from that tree, we're being told, eat from that tree. This is my body. This is my blood. Wow. What a ransom. What a love. What a sacrifice. But let's look at just two people here as I close out that actually 
heeded Jesus' words. And I picked two people at the craziness of Christianity. Probably the, the darkest of the dark ages. The, the, the darkness before any dawn was medieval Christianity during the Crusades. Doesn't get much worse than that. There weren't opportunities again and again to hear the gospel unfiltered, to be encouraged on a path of that. But yet in 1173, a man named Peter Waldo, who spawned the group called the Waldensians, heard a minstrel playing a song that was a hymn. And he was in the, the province of France when he, when he heard this, Peter, Peter did. Uh, and as he heard it, his heart was so cut that he went back to study the scriptures. And he realized that despite of all of his privileges that he had in life, that if he really wanted to honor God, he would forsake all of that, give it away, not be encumbered by it, but, but, but then go and serve Jesus and make this gospel known. That somehow or another, people like him that have been going to church had not heard the gospel. And he was going to bring it to them. And so he did. Sold what he had, kept enough money to take care of his family, kept enough money to have the Bible translated out of Latin into the kind of the local language. There was a form of French that, that, he, that he had to translate it into. And then he took that Bible, and within the next few weeks, he had actually, well, it was really a year, he had converted 11 people to this great mission of bringing the gospel back to the society around him. So there they are, the 12 that, that are now following Jesus, despite everything else in society around them, beating them down. And they actually started by looking at the scriptures of having discipleship partners. They went out two by two. The discipler was called a Baba, and, and the, the, the follower then would learn from him until he was then mature enough to then become the Baba for someone else. And so on and so on and so on. And through that chain of discipleship, the Waldensians spread gospel Christianity all throughout the region. All the way up into the Alps, all the way down into uh, Italy, all the way uh, throughout the kind of the um, Gaul and, and, and that area. And it brought to the attention of the bishops and the Pope. And ultimately, rather than the Pope or the bishops to be excited about Christianity breaking out again, they persecuted the Waldensians fiercely. Some of the most horrific stories of, of being impaled on a pole, of, of, of being burned, of being tortured, are all about these Waldensians. But it never slowed them down and it never stopped their spread. And, and why was it that they were able to do such great things? Because they decided that just as Jesus was so dependent on God for everything, and as a result could do everything in His name, they likewise would not have a theoretical Christianity, but they were going to actually do what the Bible says. And again and again, as he, as he turned to passage after passage, he saw this idea of giving up all of your own self-reliance, depend completely on God, and live out what it is that God says. That's the simplicity of their Christianity, and they brought it. And made a radical difference in the time that they were there. They ended up influencing someone who likewise decided to pursue an, a real imitation of Christianity. St. Francis of Assisi uh, was, was perhaps influenced by them. He was in the same time frame. And, and as he read the Sermon on the Mount, he was grieved that this was not his life. Um, he's, he's described as a, as a man who loved pleasure. No one loved pleasure more than Francis. I'm reading from a little article. 
He had a ready wit. He sang merrily. He delighted in fine clothes and a showy display. He was handsome, happy, gallant, courteous. He became the prime favorite among the young nobles of Assisi, the foremost at every feat of arms, the leader of, of, of all of the reveling in public. He was the king of frolic. And he wanted nothing more than to be a knight. He had the money, he had the ambition, and it was the great thing that one would do during the Crusades to be a knight. It's the very thing that he wanted to do, but ultimately, the word of God broke through to him. Amen. And, and as it, he was so deeply convicted that he forsook all of the dandy that was his, his former identity and decided with simplicity to take no tunic, no bag, no staff, and just bring Jesus to all that would hear. And so he did. And, and he, he wasn't leading just some sort of an inward life. He was so effective in his evangelism that he ultimately went down to North Africa and preached to the sultan in the midst of the crusades themselves. And so dependent on God was he. I don't know if this was folly or not, but this is the story. He said to the sultan, how about this? Since we're at an impasse, you say Muhammad is the real deal. I say Jesus is the only uh, real deal. Why don't we do this? Why don't we have a test of fire? And this is not like a Mount Carmel Elijah fire where let's go put a bull out on a pit and see what fire consumes the, the bull, Muhammad's fire or Jesus' fire. That's not what he said. Let's, let's stoke a massive fire and then I'll walk in the fire and then you walk in the fire. And whichever of us comes out, we'll trust that that was the statement of God showing us what is the truth. And the sultan, in all of his great power, stared down Francis and said, uh, no, no, thank you. <laughs> and, and, and yet, while, while he rejected the gospel message, he couldn't deny the power of Christ, even in Francis, and ended up allowing him to continue to preach and ultimately secured his safe passage back home when it was ready for that. So impressed was he. And of course, then the, the, the influence of Francis during that dark time in Christianity is really remarkable. But this is not just for them. It's not just those who exalt themselves in history will be humbled. Those who humble themselves in history will be exalted. This is for us. This is for us. And, and here is the same challenge that we had from last time, from, from verse 5, that if we have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, Jesus says there's nothing that we as the body of Christ can't do. But do we want to do it? Do we really want that to be the path of our lives? Do we really want to live completely selflessly? Do we want to be of no reputation, no repute, no means that we just want to rely completely on the Father and just see what it's like? To have Jesus day after Jesus day after Jesus day. Well, that's what humbling ourselves really is looking at. But is that what you're willing to do? We need to take a deep look at this. We can't go away from this hymn saying, oh, Jesus, those nice words. Wow, isn't that nice the way that he did that? No, no, he says, have the same attitude. Have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Because what Jesus wants to do through you, plan A, no plan B, is to use you, exalt you in your service to Him, not exalt you in your great reputation, exalt you in your service to Him to do great things in our community Amen. and to make a great difference. But it can't happen if we hold on to Eddie as Lord. Yeah. That you are Lord. 
in any aspect of our lives. But when we can peel all of that away, stand as we did before our baptism, before the great cloud of witnesses, and before one another, and to be able to proclaim with reality and clarity, Jesus is Lord. And really, really have that as the the, the very motto, the very uh, compass, true north setting of our lives. If that's what our life is, then there's nothing that we can't do. Nothing that God can't use us to. The only thing that impedes us is self. To strip that away is to know Jesus. To strip that away is to do the will of Jesus. To strip that away is to be the body of Christ. Let's be nothing less. And as you contemplate, ask yourself the same question as last week. I bet a lot of you never did. What can you do? What will you do when you truly remove yourself and live as Jesus did for others? Thank you.